I want to go now, so good luck to you. You can stay tonight. No, uh, I want to go now. I want to leave. Listen, Paul. If I travel all the way up there, and I find that you've been lying to me, I'm going to find you and I'm going to take more than my money back. Is that all right with you? Yes, sir. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We have arrived at episode 57 and we're back to Cole's choice. What did you select this time? I selected There Will Be Blood from 2007 written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson and based on Upton Sinclair's novel Oil, exclamation point, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Dano, Kevin J. O'Connor, and Dylan Frazier, with an excellent score by Johnny Greenwood. It's a story of family, religion, hatred, oil, and madness focusing on a turn-of-the-century prospector and speculator, Daniel Plainview, in the early days of the oil business. Now, he specifically says in that first great speech, the first time we hear dialogue in the film, that he is not a speculator. He says that, but he's lying. He is definitely a speculator. They all were. Well, I am very excited to talk about this one. It's not such a deeply personal experience for me as it is for you, I know. But I did want to point out that it was also named the best film of the 21st century so far in 2017, this year by the New York Times. So I feel like connections aside, we're about to tackle something really special. It is a masterpiece, and that's extremely high praise, best film of the 21st century so far. There is some stiff competition in there that I can think of just off the top of my head, but it has to be considered at least among the top, if not the top. When you say it's an extremely personal selection for me, you are absolutely right. I know we usually save it for the end, but do you mind if I push the why I chose it part to the front a little more this time? Please, go for it. Some background for people who might not know the story. I was married once before, before I was married to you. Her name was Julie, and two weeks ago from the day that we are recording this, she unfortunately lost her battle with cancer. A second bout, in fact. She had survived the first time around, and then it returned extremely aggressively and somewhat unexpectedly, and she was gone. She was a wonderful person, and she was my best friend for the biggest part of 20 years, 10 of those that we lived together, 6 of those that we were married, and I'm having a difficult time navigating those things right now. And this film had been on my mind through all this because it, along with No Country for Old Men, were two sides of the same coin that is all tied to that time period when our marriage was dissolving. I was relating strongly at the time to these themes of men in harsh circumstances in, in the case of Daniel Plainview, self-imposed isolation. And that feeling of isolation returned in a big way two weeks ago, though not self-imposed this time, visited upon me by outside circumstances. And since I have not been able to think about anything else, I thought that we might as well just talk about this film and that time and how a piece of art can sometimes come to mean more than its creators could have ever possibly imagined. 
and how we all invest these things with the things that mean so much to us. It reminds me of two things that we've talked about, and I don't mean to equate the circumstances or the emotions, but going back to the Smile Jenny, You're Dead episode where I was talking about what that meant to me in my very specific circumstance. And then recently in our bonus episode, we were talking about overwhelming film experiences. And one for me, on paper, you wouldn't think that the events that I'm watching unfold on the film would remind me of things that had happened in my own life totally unrelated, but they did. And it becomes something so much more than what you're seeing. And a person sitting next to me might not feel the same way. But we all imbue these experiences with our own experiences. So I didn't mean to sound overly excited or even chipper about the prospect of discussing the film with this terrible event that just happened. Well, I've given you the most difficult job in the room, and that's not fair on my part, and I certainly don't want you to feel that way. We should be excited about it because this is an epic and monumental piece of work, both on its own and for the things that it personally means to me. And so I don't mean to put you in an incredibly awkward position or make you feel like you have to thread a particularly difficult needle because that's not what I want. Certainly not what Julie would have ever wanted. Life to her was a constant celebration, and she knew that it wasn't that for me. So she would have fully expected me to make this choice and have this discussion. But I don't want you to feel like you have to tamp down your enthusiasm or rein yourself in somehow. Knowing what I know, that would be inappropriate. Okay, Daniel Plainview, I'll take you at your word. <laughs> okay. Shall we get started? Yes, let's. I remember coming into this cold not knowing a lot of what to expect when I saw this in 2007, but just being excited about the fact that Daniel Day-Lewis, one of my absolute favorite actors, was working with Paul Thomas Anderson, one of my absolute favorite contemporary directors. Now, I saw this on home video instead of in the theater right after it was available. And I didn't watch it again in the meantime until we just watched it for this episode. So you've never seen it on the big screen. Correct, which I would really like to remedy that at some point. Because I noticed it made a huge difference in how I felt about Plainview in particular this time. And why I like revisiting films so much, ones that are worthy of that, is that when I watched it the first time, I was so involved in the story and the performances that I didn't get to notice a lot of the technical things, which is what I was focused on this time. Now, when we were talking about this before we sat down, we always tend to ask each other, what do you want me to look for when I'm watching this? And so you had mentioned the score. And I feel so silly. That was a thing that I had not remembered color palette is what stood out for me. Mm. So the film opens to those strings, which I tend to think of as horror movie music. And I thought, oh my gosh, I completely missed a huge thing. It was the thing that immediately made me fall in love with the film. To me, it doesn't connote horror film exactly. To me, it felt like I connected with it because I thought, this is the sound of the hornets in my head. And in the great way that the music serves the film throughout, it was telling us something about the landscape that might not be initially obvious if you are just looking at it with no sound attached to it. In that regard, you're right. It's telling us about the horror that lies just beneath those reserves of oil bubbling below the surface 
the demon that is plain view that is about to be set loose on the land. And I know it's West Texas, and it's supposed to be California, but it makes me think of Colorado. Have I ever told you my theory about Colorado, how I feel about Colorado? No, I don't think so. Colorado is a thin veneer of beautiful nature laid over a bedrock foundation of murder. Every time I've traveled there, especially the first time, when you're crossing the Continental Divide, when you're traveling through the land that Alfred Packer roamed, it feels like you're never far from kicking over a rock and a human femur being underneath it. Goodness, that's not covered in Rocky Mountain High, as far as I can remember. <laughs> as long as I can remember, I felt that way about it. And that's how this makes me feel, this music, that impending dread. Another cinematic instance where it would fit, for example, think about that long car ride at the beginning of The Shining. You put this music under that, and it exposes the deadly heart of Colorado, right? I think that's a great point. And it's very much keyed into the landscape, as you mentioned. I feel like it's less about people and more about this thing. Well, I may have never been seduced by an opening 15 minutes in a film like I was by this, considering especially the frame of mind I was in at the time. It has that music. It has that desolate landscape. And it's a bit of an enigma to start with. All we start with is a man in the desert and a hole in the ground. And that man is Daniel Plainview. He is a silver prospector. It's 1898, and we're watching Daniel toil, is the only word that I can think of. This is backbreaking labor. Underground and above ground, it's all that same palette. It's all the same gray or beige or brown. It's going to be a long time before we see anything that's blue or green. And the only color that comes to us is from the fire or the spark from the dynamite. And he has this accident. He's incapacitated to a degree, but he's found, possibly, this bit of silver. And so he has to push himself on his back, backwards, back towards the assay office in order to get this claim. And this is also something I can imagine you doing. So, so there are so many moments throughout this that anyone who knows you can see how you would identify with the things that are driving this character. Well, there are a couple more things that I want to mention about that. We have the discordant music. We have the harsh landscape. We have this figure in isolation who will not yield. Fierce determination does not begin to cover it. And that is driven by a rage. That is a fury. It is not just eyes on the prize. He is literally hell-bent. And you mentioned that he makes his way to the assay office, but I don't think that conveys the arduous task ahead of him when you realize he is going to have to inch along on his back six inches at a time when the camera pans up from where he is and you realize he's going to do this for dozens of miles and he will get there. Now we were talking about how much I relate to this character and I was mentioning to you how I really wanted to distinguish what I think about it and how I draw certain lines. My love of this character comes with understanding all of his flaws and my own. It is not glamorizing it in my mind. It simply is because I look at that and I see things I really truly recognize. So I don't want people to confuse this with the dummos that think Tony Montana in Scarface is the coolest guy ever, or even a more complicated and interesting character like Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. I don't want this to be confused with some dead-eyed freshman who thinks that that is awesome and has that poster in his dorm room. 
this is a different mixture of admiration and disgust, both at him and me. <laughs> it's all rolled into one. I also felt that though I wasn't necessarily recognizing this character in me, I could recognize that this is someone who is not driven by greed as we might understand it. There's something much, much larger at work here, and therefore much more interesting to me. Now once he has this successful silver strike, he changes occupations and becomes an oil man. Do you think that was because it was too dangerous? to do the solo mining thing, or, well, everything in 1898 was dangerous. Every industry could kill you. Everything you took on as a major undertaking like this was the first time people were trying it in a lot of cases, or there were definitely no safety regulations in place to administrate that sort of thing. Why the change from silver to oil, do you imagine? If, like you say, it's not profit-driven. Let me clarify that. I think there is definitely a profit motive in it. Okay. Otherwise, he could go off and be Thoreau. <laughs> I mean, really, if you want to have a solitary existence, there are other ways to do that. But love of money is not what drives him. I see. Okay. Now, this is when I would have to learn a little bit more about history of the time. Okay. Because we know that the novel that this is based on was also discussing actual characters. We have Edward Doheny and Harry Sinclair as the real-life underpinnings of Daniel Plainview. Now, this was the time of the burgeoning oil boom, so I don't know if it was one of those things that the silver veins were starting to dry up at this point. We're also going to look ahead later. We're going to talk about this a lot more when we get there, but there's a moment when he talks about a place that he had to leave, and he doesn't go into why. It's just that he couldn't stay there any longer. So I also wonder if something else was at play, but I assume it's because you move out of one industry that you know is going to dry up because you're smart enough to know that that's coming, and you get into the thing that has the future. However short-lived and incredibly dangerous that future might right. be as well. Well, it's 1902 now, and he's expanded his operation. He has taken on employees at this point. But like you mentioned, it is still punishing work in a severe setting. And one of his men dies, leaving behind a one-year-old son, who then becomes Daniel's ward, who he takes on as his own son. But I don't know, is this a softer Daniel Plainview early on? Does he grow more and more hardened as he continues on through his life in this business? Because there is a moment of tenderness with the boy on the train as they are leaving. But I think about that, and I also think back to the very first time we see his face when he is crouched down beside the campfire, looking off into the distance. And there's that thing I see that, again, I relate to and I love about him, that it is constant calculation. He is regarding something he sees that only he can see, far in the future. So if he is already lining all of these things up, if he is already looking that far ahead, is there something calculated and impure about his motives in taking the boy, H.W., with him? Because any of the other men could have taken him as well. That's the question that I always start with. Why did he make that choice? Mm. He could have also reasonably taken the boy to a town and left him at a church, an orphanage. Really, the possibilities are practically endless. And I don't feel like I can fully answer that without jumping ahead to information that we learn later. Okay. I'm fully with you when we're watching him throughout this entire first section, 
the thoughts, the ideas that you can see are forming in his head. We might not know what those are, but we know that they exist. In the next scene, when we hear him fully speak for the first time, when he's delivering the speech, when he sets himself up as a family man, which is crucial to this endeavor, I would say, it's going to ingratiate you in a small town atmosphere. But much later, when he is essentially unburdening himself, he talks about always having this idea of a family and children. And I think I believe both things to be true. Mm -hmm. I believe both purity and impurity. I believe that he could want children for the sake of his future goals and to express his love that I know exists inside him. Throughout the film, as we watch what personal relationships do to him what he allows to happen because of his own warped sensibility, I believe that I am watching love come out of him. Are you thinking of specific examples, specific scenes? It's truly the whole thing. I believe every moment of this film. I guess what it ultimately comes down to for me is that I think you have to be a solitary person to understand a solitary person and therefore inhabit and bring that character to life. I've always felt that Daniel Day-Lewis was that sort of person. And I think that one way or another, solitary people will always revert back to that state because it is their natural state. So in this case, even though you sense that his feelings are legitimate, they are ultimately going to be overridden by his nature. Not only the solitary nature, but the fury, the rage overtakes every other emotion, leaving no room for anything else. Whether you push people away or you interpret their motives as betrayal. In this case, we're loosely defining push someone away as murder them in a field and bury them in a shallow grave in one instance. It's going to end up with you being alone, I think. And I don't mean you, well, sort of you, but also the universal you when applied to this character. I do think you're absolutely right about both things existing in him at the same time. But... I think he tips his hand, at least to me, even earlier about how he's ultimately going to end up. Because I see that constant regarding. The next scene we move on to, where he is in the room with the townsfolk, pitching his organization to drill these wells, you see that regarding of everything. You see him calculating the geometry. You see him looking for the person that he can use to be the leverage in this situation. And there's a moment not long after this where... When asked where his wife is, he lies. She died in childbirth, so now it's just me and my son. So anything that we were wondering about before, we saw the most positive aspects of his character to start with. His shrewdness, his industry, his determination, his compassion for the child, which seems to be demonstrated to us on the train. And we have to take it face value because we don't yet know anything about the man. But now, when he says that about the wife that never existed, we know that he is capable of dishonesty. We know that he is using this boy as a tool in addition to having a son. I both agree and disagree with that. Okay. Or to be more clear, I think it's another situation of where both things can be true at the same time. Absolutely, it is established that the boy, H.W., is a tool because at first we don't even see him. He is obscured by Daniel's body, and the camera has to turn for us to realize that he's even there. But imagine another scenario where possibly he's not in the same business. He's taken on a son, 
and it is incredibly appropriate for the time period to have made up a story for the boy's benefit because he's not old enough at this point to necessarily understand the concept of adoption or the idea that yes, you are loved and needed and I did these things in order to take care of you, which is a conversation you can envision happening much later in that boy's life. So there's a genuine altruistic purpose, at least one of several. I think possible realities exist, which is why I think this is so fascinating all the time. Because I think you could even take this scenario and put it into a different film. And in that other film, this character would have created this story essentially for the boy's benefit, expecting later on to be able to explain himself, mm -hmm. and then realize at some point he's gotten in so deep he has to continue the fiction or else it's going to come to a head. That would also be a film I would watch. You could take out a huge chunk of this film and it would still be incredibly fascinating. If you started with this section up through H.W.'s accident, a bit of that aftermath, take out everything else, all of the ensuing years, and go right up until the end... It would still be incredibly fascinating. Well, it's 1911 when all of this is taking place, and oil has literally changed the landscape. In real life, nonfiction, the Spindletop Well in East Texas came in 1901, and there's no way to convey how much that changed this part of the country. Growing up in Oklahoma and living in Texas now for almost 20 years, we are well-versed with the lore of the oil fields and the wildcatters and the speculators, and it is diabolical and insane and tragic and fascinating. My first taste of that was watching Dallas when I was a little kid. <laughs> but I actually did think, without doing any research and reading about this, I thought that this did take place in Texas. I thought that little Boston, this town that we're about to meet, mm. was Texan. I think that that makes more sense now that I know where it was filmed, but it is supposed to be California. Well, it makes sense that you would automatically assume that it's Texas, because it is, and it's an area that we actually like to travel to a lot. The band made our records out there. You and I love the Davis Mountains. It's one of our favorite places to go hiking. So you know it well. You see it, and it automatically registers as home. You know that place, so it makes sense. And so I think of this as the much broader western landscape, Texas all the way through California. We have a pivotal moment here with the introduction of Paul Sunday a young man who has come to Daniel to tell him he knows where oil is. And with all the religion that we are about to encounter, it makes me think very specifically we have a pair now, or soon will have, a pair of Cain and Abel axes between Paul and Eli Sunday, his actual brother, and Daniel and Eli, who become inextricably intertwined in a mutual battle of wills and hatred that lasts for almost two decades. I think there's a lot to be discussed theme-wise. You mentioned religion is about to play a huge part in this story, and I was reading a lot of things that discussed the idea of Daniel and Eli as being these opposing forces, religion versus greed, and the disparity of those things in America, trying to reconcile those values, and I totally disagree with that, number one, because I think the two things go hand in hand, mm -hmm. especially in this viewing, which is about popular religion. That's exactly where I was going to go, too, because I kept thinking of the phrase, met your match. And not in the sense that I have met someone who is as strong as I am, but more in the sense that I have met someone who shares a vast array of qualities. 
our ultimate agenda might be slightly different, but we recognize these things in each other. And you see that throughout. You see that they are both constantly regarding things, that they are both measuring constantly. Eli, due to, I think, his relative youth and naivete, miscalculates more than Daniel does and underestimates his foe more than Daniel does. And overestimates himself in the process, I would say. I see a lot of overestimation in Daniel, too, though, but I see that in relation to everything else. I see that in relation to what he wants to be as a businessman more. I think he desires to be this titan of industry, but it is not within him to be able to keep it together, to hold down the lesser angels of his nature long enough to become a Rockefeller, to become a literal robber baron. He's a successful man, but he never quite reaches that upper echelon that he craves so terribly. And that's because I think he overestimates himself, similar to what Eli does in regards to Daniel. I think he never includes in his calculation that other people are always going to be involved somehow. You cannot get away from them, which is something that I identify with. And I love that idea of Eli being this callow version of Daniel My absolute favorite moment of his comes a bit later when he is standing amidst his church being built and he starts to almost pose and practice when no one can quite see him. Best, best, best character moment for him. And all this over and underestimation, I think, boils down to a very simple thing. Plainview and Eli are each missing a crucial component within the other person that would allow them to see what's there to be exploited. Their nature blinds them to that quality in the other man, which is a crucial error on both of their parts, fatal in one of their cases. So I guess that makes Eli able in both of these analogies, since that's the way he turns out, literally in the case with Daniel, figuratively in the case with Paul. So it's Paul that provides this new way forward. It is the path to Little Boston. The first domino is going to be the Sunday Ranch and then to try to get up all the land adjacent to it as well. The opening scene we did is taken from this meeting with Paul and Daniel, and I think it illustrates certain facets of each of those characters that we both really identify with and love. For me, it's the statement, I want to go now. (laughs) Is that because you're coming from a place of non-confrontation being the preferred method? Is it just that Daniel is so intimidating, I would rather be anywhere than here? Or is it that my business is done, I'm going? It's more of the latter. You know, I'm, I don't shy from a confrontation and sometimes create them when they don't need to be created. It's more about, I don't want to be in this situation. Can these things be purely transactional? And then let's just go. But it doesn't make it any easier when I'm looking you dead in the eye and telling you I will come for my pound of flesh. While you're holding my hand? Mm-hmm. Right. So Daniel and H.W. strike out for that Sunday ranch as strangers. The thing to note here for me is that we don't see any of the women's faces or hear any of their voices, which is very much a hallmark of this film in general. Now that you say that, I think we talked briefly about this in the No Country episode, that thing that I was searching for at the time, that I was gravitating to, being drawn to, so compelled by in these two movies. I wonder how much of that in me was maybe even subconsciously driven by the overwhelming masculinity of both of those films. Or do you see it that way? Is that what you are saying here? Thank you for asking that, because I wanted to clarify, I don't consider this to be misogyny. 
there are many characters that we don't know their names, we don't hear their voices, we never learn anything about H.W.'s actual father mm. or hear him speak. This is more about settling on a couple of people who are incredibly important and the rest of the world essentially doesn't exist. That changes very effectively much later on when we learn more about Mary, and it's totally appropriate then. Mm -hmm. And right now in this moment, when they are set to make this deal with Mr. Sunday, the patriarch of the family, for essentially quail prices, not oil prices, so they're going to give him a much, much lower number than it is worth, this is about the father subjugating his own family, I think. But even then, bending to the will of Eli. Eli takes over. Eli is smart enough to know what he has under his feet and to make a play for himself. We learn more about, specifically Mary later on, when it becomes more about a family. It becomes more about feelings. This is about, again, transactional work. I think the great key here is that Eli is pushing for $5,000 for his church, he says. And when he tries to take Daniel's hand to pray, Daniel rips it away from him. So do you also see a similar duality in Eli that you see in Daniel? The two things coexisting within the same person? Here at the dinner table with the prayer, and then trying to dictate to Daniel about giving the blessing on the oil derrick. Are at least some of his religious motivations sincere, while he is also trying to exploit and manipulate Daniel, again, grossly underestimating his capacity for cruelty and violence. I think in a person like Eli, who says that he has a calling, and who may actually believe that, I think that calling is a justification for whatever behavior is inside of him. I think it's a person with an overweening ego, with a huge sense of self-importance, who believes that he has a gift, who believes that he has a talent, and this is how it's going to come out, because this is a convenient method in that sort of town to be able to do that. Well, then they do share a certain similarity, at least in regards to knowing what they are capable of, and knowing that that is more than what everyone around them is capable of. Because clearly I side with Daniel in most cases, and especially in the religion case. Eli is a charlatan and an amateur, and we can see that. But fortunately for Eli... He is playing to an audience that is considerably less sophisticated than he is. The thing that it reminded me the most of was wise blood mm -hmm. in, the, in these sections. And when we start to see more of his faith healing in a bit. John Houston connection again with uh, Daniel's mannerisms and direction in wise blood. Absolutely. And I think sophistication is the key. He hasn't been anywhere. He's smart enough as a person to know that goat farming is going nowhere. Oil is the future. But he's not smart enough to have been anywhere else or done anything else in order to see what a rank amateur he in fact is and the field that he's actually playing in. And when he does finally go, he fails and he is corrupted beyond redemption. Absolutely. And anyone could see that coming, mm. but not him. Now we start rapidly moving ahead with the progress to get this new Derek built. During this episode, we see again another example of this duality in Daniel that you're talking about and the relative sophistication of his audience. There's an episode where he is pitching all of the improvements and all of the wonderful ways that this oil is going to change their lives for the better. Which, by the way, Daniel Day-Lewis improvised. But I don't think he's lying. Those things will happen because he's seen it. 
he is not telling them something that's not true. The untruth of it, I guess, is that it will not come from Plainview's thorough and thoughtful stewardship. It will be a byproduct of what comes out of the ground, and it will bring a lot of ills with it as well. Something interesting, actually, I was just reading some things, again, a true crime connection for me. Towns like Houston and Odessa, when you see an oil boom, is when you see the most violent crime spike. In the early 70s, when Houston was between first and third on the murder per capita list, is when they were seeing the most of the oil business happening that they'd ever seen. When that moves somewhere like Odessa, you see the exact same thing. With oil comes trouble, and it's been that way since the very beginning. He conveniently leaves that part out. But he's not lying about all the other things that will happen. You will have money to build a school. You will become prosperous if we all go in on this together. It's what never seems to occur to anyone in these situations. That's what happens on Monday. What happens on Tuesday? Mm -hmm. And how no one is ever equipped to have that foresight or to be able to work through those inevitable ills that do come. The thing about that in this case is he knows. He's seen it. That's why I think it's so appropriate that in this next section where we start to see the competition come out, the music becomes almost like a Bernard Herrmann thriller score. There's one last thing I want to say about this lack of foresight again, which is that the most indelible image for me, again going back to color palette, is that when these other men start to come and when... Daniel begins hiring, so all of these new workers come in. The sunset, which is our true vision of color for the first time, is completely obscured by the soot and the smoke from the train. So industry is already clearly a blight. And for all this discussion of progress, this is when the music is at its most elegiac. Did I mention how much I love the score and how much it illustrates it's fascinating to me that a Brit like Johnny Greenwood could compose something that takes in so many disparate threads of American music. I hear everything in it from the Bernard Herman that you mentioned to Aaron Copeland to someone more in the avant-garde like Harry Parch. Huge influential American musicians, but all of them drawn together into this beautiful and cohesive score. It's fantastic. And speaking of composition, there is so much about the film that is classically structured. The cinematography and the rule of three. And we have an instance coming up here now that is the third significant instance of a dangerous mishap on one of Daniel's projects. And H.W. is injured, made deaf by an explosion. And the scene is intense and hellish and chaotic and there is fire and everything is soaked in oil. You see Daniel's face covered in oil grimacing in the firelight, and it's like you're looking at the devil himself. And at this juncture, he exposes more of his true nature, which sort of bears out what I was saying before about how H.W. is always more of something useful rather than a son, rather than family. It's Fletcher that retrieves H.W. from the top of the small shed that's on the side of the derrick. Daniel takes him and runs with him to safety, but then comes back. It can seem both completely callous and not at the same time. When I watch this, I watch a man who is directing all of these things because he's the only person, I guess, smart enough to know all of the steps that need to happen right now. If Gibson was on top of that small shed, where are you going? Are you going to get the pup or are you going to run around issuing directions? 
honestly, I'm looking at you and I'm telling you, I don't know what the answer would be because sometimes I've been in situations where I had to have some foresight to say, you go get Gibson. I've got to be the person that goes to take those stakes out because nobody else has thought to do this. And this could get much, much worse if I don't. Okay. But once all of the stakes are chopped, once there is nothing more to be done and he is staring up at the burning Derek, what's the last thing that happens there? With nothing more that can be done where he is, he still stays and watches. It's Fletcher that goes to check on the boy. My favorite part of that is that it is good news when that Derek finally comes down. And at the same time, Fletcher asks, is HW okay? And he says, no, he isn't. While he's almost laughing, enjoy because this good thing has happened. This is a bit of what I was, I think, touching upon earlier. And I think this goes to your point of being so enthralled in a character, and yet you understand who they are. It's not glamorizing them. So I'm not saying this is okay, but I understand what he's doing. Throughout this piece, he is this solitary person, and what nobody else seems to understand is that with solitary people, they truly have love to give inside them, but it is when it is convenient for them that will never take into account what is happening for other people or when they need to receive that love or how they need to receive it. A couple of things, lastly, about this section. It begins with this drum and wood music. I almost think of it like when the villagers are summoning King Kong as H.W. is watching on his perch before this gas explosion. This is the Harry Parch part of the score that I was talking about. The last bit is, again, about the color palette. And we have this moment when they're watching this enormous inferno happening, where the light cast back on them is an orange or red glow. This is the closest that we get to red in the entire film. For a film called There Will Be Blood, we see only suggestions of blood, and we never see any true red, even at the very end. So for all of its classical composition, it completely foregoes a traditional scheme of color symbol. There's no danger sign throughout, because blood ultimately is the whole thing. It ends with blood. The oil is blood. Blood soaked into the very fabric of the country. Blood in the sense of family. Blood in the sense of the nation giving birth to a new industry. So if blood abounds, why avoid the color? Is it too obvious a choice? I think it's really brilliant to do that, to maintain this color palette the entire time and never have even the suggestion of red, that all of this blood, all of this violence is emotional. We see it wreak havoc in lives and in futures rather than in bodily harm. But we do see bloodshed significantly at the end, and it's portrayed in at least a couple of graphic accidents throughout the film, at least for a split second. I feel like for the toll that each of these incidents takes, it's much more about what we're not shown rather than what we are shown. And those typical tricks, again, the use of the color, or lingering on the effect of the body or to the body or who these people are or their families. We don't see any of that. It's all through the lens of Daniel. It's much more about the person who has perpetrated this violence than the people to whom it is visited upon. 
Well, where then do you think H.W. fits into that in terms of how present he is in the film and how much he is on screen? The physical violence and emotional violence that has been and or is going to be visited upon him, is he the link between those two things? I think so. He becomes essentially a victim of this violence, especially in this early transition period when he has no means of communication. And that causes him to turn inward and become more isolated, partially of his own choosing and partially because Daniel has no idea what to do. This move on H.W.'s part toward his own isolation, or away from Daniel more specifically, is it a chicken or the egg thing? Do you think his own perception is that he is pulling away first, or is he doing it because of what he perceives or as a reaction to Daniel's neglect or a lifetime of signals? however subtle, that he is not wanted? I think it's more of the child's view of the one time when I really needed you, you weren't there. So what would have happened if Daniel hadn't left him at that significant moment when he said, don't leave me, don't leave me? What would have happened if they had gone immediately for a doctor? What would have happened if he had engaged a teacher right away? Well, H.W. is not the only one suffering, obviously. Daniel is reeling at least as much as he allows himself to show that. And it is at this point that Eli, unfortunately for him, chooses to confront Daniel about the money he's owed. Well, part of it I see as his nature. A person like that, all of the rest of us in that inner circle have to rise to the same level. And if we're not able to rise to that level, then what is our worth? What is our use at that point? And so Eli picks this unfortunate time to beg for this money, I always wonder what would have happened if Daniel had just given it to him. Or what would have happened if he had just killed him outright in front of those men and buried him in the desert. Yes, either of those. Instead, he humiliates him, literally shoving his face into a puddle of oil, covering him in it. And that causes Eli, in turn, to then seek out what he's not able to do. He can't humiliate Daniel back, so he does it to his father instead. So again, there's not much difference between the two men. When they come up against a feeling of impotence, for whatever reason, they lash out, and someone weaker than them bears the brunt of that. And if Eli's timing is terrible, someone appears whose timing seems to actually be working in his favor. A long-lost brother of Daniel's, Henry, shows up, just in time to fill a void that Daniel might be feeling with this rift between him and H.W. This stranger shows up, who seems to have all the credentials, has letters, references to home, and so it's an opportunity for Daniel to feel a little more grounded than he has been as far as family relations go. His adopted blood, H.W., has let him down, so possibly his real blood can come through, and it's a person who can actually hear him. And that's fortunate for us because we are now treated to what may be the best scene in the film, and most definitely Daniel's most honest, critical self-assessment, his most straightforward description of himself to the audience. And I don't know about you, but normally I wouldn't necessarily need to see someone speak their subtext. But this is brilliant. And also, exactly where I found myself at the time, with one significant exception to the whole thing. So I related to this a great deal. I don't like to explain myself. And when Daniel asks, are you an angry man, Henry? 
it's such a loaded question, and I think a rhetorical question. Do you think he was actually trying to get at whether he and Henry are the same in that regard? I think so. I was waiting for Henry to say something also that self-revelatory. We find out that Henry doesn't have that sort of thing in him. Neither the anger nor the capacity for self-revelation. I want to go back for just a second to what you said where you found yourself... I'm going to put words in your mouth, identifying with these statements. That's exactly right. The thing that I see that it makes you different from Daniel is that part of Daniel that wants no one else to succeed. I never see that in you. That's the one exception that I was talking about. And it's a fine line to draw because I do have that competition in me, but that competition is with myself. It never ends as far as what I am thinking and doing to myself within, but I don't begrudge anyone their success. I certainly don't begrudge people who work hard and are smart and achieve great things because of that. My only competition is with the standards I set for myself and whether or not I meet or exceed those. The one other thing that I enjoy so much in this section is when Henry asked Daniel, what happened to H.W.'s mother? What happened to your wife? He doesn't try to answer or come up with a story or continue that party line. He just simply says, I don't like to explain myself. And it feels different. The last line of the whole thing, though, is the one that resonated the most with me at the time, and still does, and that's the reason that you are sitting here, for example. That thing I was going through at the time, where I was absolutely certain that there was now no one left that understood me, and that whole, I can't keep doing this on my own. He specifically points out his own isolation, but then can't help himself and has to throw in with these people, with that pause, unable to mask the utter contempt that he has for practically everyone else. But I don't think he feels the need to mask it right then because he is grasping for this person that might actually get it. That's his audience right then. So maybe instead of running his mouth, Henry should have just kept it to himself and they started a podcast instead. In the meantime, while they have been having this conversation, H.W. has been going through Henry's things and sets fire to their living quarters. What do you feel like the motivation is here? Is this, I'm getting rid of this interloper that is going to come between me and my father? Is it, he spies something of Henry's fraudulent nature in the documents, in the diaries that he's going through? What is it that causes him to do this? I don't feel like that last connection completely gets made with the way that we see him looking at these things, it feels more like having this connection that he can't have. He's never seen any pictures of his mother or these other family members, all the while that Henry is ingratiating himself into this new world and taking his place, the interloper, as you mentioned. And it feels like a child who has been left to his own devices to discover really negative things and is acting out in anger and fear and frustration, and doesn't fully know what's going to happen. So I guess in one small way, he is clearly Daniel's son in this way. He cannot quell his own rage, and because of that, the end result turns out to be exactly the opposite of what he hoped for when he committed that act. He's sent away. With H.W. out of the picture, Daniel is now free to try to exploit the resources of the geography, unencumbered by any distractions. And he sets up this meeting with Standard Oil, where that thing that I was mentioning about how his temperament betrays him comes into full bloom. 
I have never heard such a succinct and specific threat during a business negotiation as I will come into your house in the night and cut your throat. He is clearly not emotionally equipped, like I said, to be one of these major players. This is where the difference really hit home to me, the difference between the theater experience and the TV, the home viewing experience. In what way? Specifically, Daniel's stature and immensity. In the theater, he was towering, a juggernaut of hate and fury that no one could contend with. But on a small screen, it brought that down to a human level for me somehow. Specifically in this scene, where it's clear what a flawed person he is, that is directly reflected in the response of the Standard Oil executives. They are not terrified. In fact, at least one of them is slightly bemused by the whole thing, it seems like, because he knows that he is backed by the immense power of Standard Oil. And while this person before him making these threats might be a lunatic, he can easily be squashed by this company with no problem whatsoever. He is not nearly as unconquerable as it seems when you are watching him on a screen where Daniel was 20 feet tall. I personally don't have the luxury of not being afraid of lunatics. I don't have standard oil behind me, so I felt the same way. I thought that he was a giant, and I would have taken that threat seriously. If he was aware of how single-minded Daniel can be, then maybe he would have. And Daniel was not about to have his plans undone by failure in this instance. Instead, he forges a partnership with Union Oil for a pipeline that's going to carry this product all the way to the sea. And because of that, there is a brief celebratory period. He and Henry are at the seaside and go for a swim, and there's a period where they are reminiscing together. And this is where realization sets in for Daniel that Henry is not who he claims to be. So once again, family, quote-unquote, has let him down. And really, Henry should have opened his eyes a little wider. He could have seen Daniel seething, watching him, and known something terrible is coming. Well, much like the trunk in rear window, gloves are never a good sign. When you wake up in the middle of nowhere and a man like Daniel Plainview has put his gloves on and there is no work around to be done, you know that you are the work at hand. That to me is the most terrifying scene in the entire movie as Henry is roused from his sleep and that's what you see. You don't even see Daniel's entire body. You just see the center section with his gloved hands. And Daniel has formulated this idea, and it's true that Henry is a coward and weak and worthy only of contempt. And so he dispatches him, shoots him in the head, buries him in a shallow grave. And again, the smallness of the character came through here. Whereas before, that felt almost like biblical retribution. On a small screen, I was forced to reevaluate what is it that Henry has done that's so wrong. What we know is that Henry is not actually Henry. He knew the real Henry and assumed that identity. So again, blood that is not blood are the ones who have not been able to rise to Daniel's level. The main question I was left with that I have to go back and reevaluate the whole film with because of the stature thing was, is Daniel Plainview powerful or is he just a man consumed by powerful emotions? There's a distinct difference between the two. Is this another one of those instances where you're about to say both at the same time? Probably, and also that kind of old saw of, do you want to be feared or respected? Well, with a hard day's work of murder behind him, Daniel drifts off, and it's now his turn to be rudely awakened. This time by Mr. Bandy, who is a property owner that he has been trying to get in touch with to buy the last valuable tract of land. 
He's been the one holdout this entire time, and he has seen what Daniel has done. And he makes him a bargain. You can have this land if you become a member of our church. Not the most godly deal to strike at the moment, letting a man off the hook for homicide and giving him property rights just for becoming a church member. I guess that speaks to the power of religion amongst this small group of people, amongst a number of groups of people, but in particular, Eli's flock. What's interesting to me is what Eli says next when they're at this meeting which is that God as a universal savior is a lie, which seems to directly go against what Bandy believes and why he has brought Daniel there. But again, his parallels with Daniel, it's exactly what Daniel would believe, but just for different reasons, expressing it a different way. It's Eli's opportunity, he thinks, to assume power over Daniel. Oh, he makes such a terrible mistake. This is a moment, actually, regardless of size, where I would have also liked to have seen this in the theater as we watched Daniel's face. It was unbelievable. So much playing across his face. There's only one other scene I can think of that compares to it, and it's the scene that I mentioned in our mini-episode about a woman under the influence where Jenna Rowland is processing coming back home after having been hospitalized. So many emotions playing across her face. It's like that here. It's so powerful, but it's an exact opposite set of emotions. It's not fear. It's not doubt. It's none of those things. It's all on the rage scale. Any upset you see in him is some variation of anger, not guilt. What drives that home to me the most when I'm trying to put myself in his shoes is that moment when he has to submit to other people touching him Mm. while he has these baptismal waters on his body another instance of complete relation if i'm in that instance i am making a list and your names are all going on it it makes my skin crawl to watch it and it's incomparable on the big screen when it captures that improvised moment on paul dano's part where he slaps him and you see such honest malice come across his face that is the point at which we know this is never going to be over that eli has made a grave miscalculation and that Daniel is not going to stop until he has exacted his revenge for this. And there is that moment that's been debated and that is utterly chilling to me where he walks over to him after the service and you don't hear what he says to him because the congregation is making too much noise. But what do you imagine Daniel said to Eli when he shook his hand at the end? I can't even begin to fathom. No idea. Do you have an idea? I don't think it was either great job. No, (laughs) no. Or you, Rodder. I don't think it was either of those two things. Probably not. I think he thought of something very specific to Eli's most inner fears. The upshot of it being, there is no place on earth anymore where you are safe from me. Tellingly, though, there is comfort before we move away from this scene. Mary comes to Daniel and wraps her arm around his neck. And it's the one genuine moment of decent human interaction and actual comfort that occurs in the entire scene. I think he truly loves Mary at the very least considers her sort of a good luck talisman. But I think it's deeper than that. Like with H.W., there are two sets of things going on. She represents good fortune, but he also genuinely cares about this child. I could also see a little bit at play of when he casts his beneficence on someone, they essentially become his property. Mm. And for him, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's still genuine love or emotion to the extent that he can feel it, but he does own them to a certain extent. 
So as the seed of revenge is now planted in Daniel's brain, a few things happen in sort of quick succession. H.W. comes back. The pipeline is underway. And I think it's exhibited to us that Daniel realizes that he was incomplete without his son. He may not have known it at the time, but now that the thing that he was missing has returned, I think he is beginning to understand that. And I think at the end of the day, if H.W. had come back and embraced him and everything would have been quote-unquote fixed, that would have been great. I don't know. I really love that scene, and I think he respects the boy more when he lashes out at him and gets it out of his system. Basically, he's letting him work it out. I think that he would hope that that would be the end of it. Mm -hmm. And if it had been, that would have been great. And I really don't think it's ever the same after that point. Whether it is a sense of H.W. essentially knowing who his father is, or knowing himself a little bit more, I don't think that relationship could ever be returned to where it was before. Well, Daniel, in his way, has now amassed a mighty empire. It's 1927, and he's a very wealthy man. He's also a wreck. H.W. in the interim has married Mary, and Daniel is all alone, puttering about this huge mansion, shooting holes in the walls, drunkenly falling asleep wherever he lays down to eat. And we have two final confrontations. One with his son. H.W. arrives to tell him, I'm going to Mexico. I have to try to be my own man. And in any other circumstance, this would be a wonderful moment. This would be H.W. saying, because of what I've learned from you, I'm ready to go be my own man. I love you very much. I just have to go do this thing. But this is the opportunity for Daniel to feel as though that final knife is being driven in and to also then trying to twist the knife in H.W., telling him essentially the truth or this version of where the truth started, which is that you are not my real son. H.W.'s motivations here, do you feel, because he is at least Daniel's son somewhat, that there was even the slightest inkling of repaying abandonment with abandonment? Or is there nothing impure in H.W.'s motives? I feel like because of what he says and how he says it, this has been building for a long time, and he and Mary have been working towards this mm -hmm. point to make this break, and this is a very, very big deal for him. And he didn't have to say, I love you. Mm. None of that had to have been said. He could have just left or he could have shouted recriminations at him, any of those things. And he doesn't. He tries to be a peacemaker. He could have just sent a telegram for that matter. And when Daniel says, I needed a sweet face, that's mm. the role that you filled. I still don't believe it. But he does force H.W. to leave, and this break has happened. But he is still remembering them playing together as he is shambling down the stairs. And this final break with H.W. once again opens the door for Eli to walk through at exactly the most inopportune time. Did anything about this final conversation, this final confrontation that they have, surprise you when you saw it the first time? Did you know this was how it was going to go? I didn't. I was very surprised. I expected it to end with H.W., and I didn't expect to see it unfold in a bowling alley. That's a pretty neat bowling alley. That's actually Doheny's mansion that they're in, and that is a replica of the bowling alley that he had at the time. I have to say that feeling like I understood the character as much as I did, it did not come as a surprise. Particularly at two points. He makes Eli renounce his faith and profess that he is in fact a fraud. And after that is the moment I'm talking about. When Eli starts to tell his story about coming to the city and being lured by sin... Here is what I understand about Daniel as he is watching him explain himself. I will let you say any stupid thing you want to say if I know that I am going to kill you. 
It doesn't matter. Whatever you are saying, it might as well be noise. Go ahead. Talk all you want. Here's your opportunity. It doesn't mean a thing. Nothing you are saying matters. The other part of that equation is, I understand feeling like I felt at the time and the circumstances that I was dealing with. And even this past week, I am at my most dangerous to everyone else when I do not care what happens to me. Knowing those things, I was not at all shocked or surprised about what happened to Eli. And what happens is Daniel beats him to death. Clubs his head in with a bowling pin. And his blood is too dark to be red. The last vestiges of the oil spilling out onto the alley. And I might have never understood a character more fully than when he says, I'm finished, and everything that that connotes. I think I've covered pretty thoroughly why I chose it and why this one is so important to me now more than ever. Are there things about it that resonated with you? You would have chosen this eventually if left to your own devices, right? I don't know that I would have, actually. There would probably be other things that would have come before it. It might have taken me years to get to Mm, it. Okay. Even with it being the best film of the 21st century. Yes, I guess so. Hmm. I guess I just have other things that I feel more imperative that okay. I want to more talk personal. about. More personal. Okay. Thank you. Well, what are you left with after this viewing? I guess simply the masterpiece that it is, the piece of art that it is. The performances, if you were a dummy like me and you didn't maybe pay enough attention to the score the first time around, really note it this time. Mm-hmm. There are so many different pieces of music throughout this. The last part I think of is a symphony in different parts. I was fascinated by the use of color, as I mentioned, and there was something really fun, too, that we both noted. As we were going back to transcribe the scene to do, we were playing it backwards, and it gives a whole other glimpse into the mastery of cinematography. I'm glad you reminded me of that, because I definitely wanted to mention that It's shot so seamlessly, so fluidly. It's perfect in terms of camera placement and movement in that way that John Ford was perfect. Much the same way that John Ford would map out a scene and find the exact right place to put the camera, maybe perhaps better than any other American director, at least of the time. Anderson and his cinematographer, Robert Ellswick, collaborated to make a technically perfect film, it seems like to me. It's so vast and expansive, but nothing of it is wasted. And I know we've mentioned already about how classically composed it is, and yet nothing is obvious in their movements. And it only really hit home to me once we started watching it in reverse. It exposes so much, and it points out to me, in some cases, how inactive a viewer I am. How did I miss this the first time? It's like a good referee or an umpire. It's so, the job is performed so well, you don't even notice it. But it should be noticed because it's spectacular. Any other thing that you wanted to include in here in this final wrap-up? I love the movie. It's hard for me to watch, and yet I cannot stay away from it. I mentioned the way it's sort of one side of the coin that No Country for Old Men occupies the other side. To me, No Country is the film that regards my father. This is the one that's about me. I discovered something that I thought was really interesting when we're talking about those two things together and how they're inextricably linked for you, and simply they came out around the same time. So Roger Ebert was not able to stay away from No Country when he was talking about There Will Be Blood. Okay. He said, and bear with me, there's a couple of lines here. 
There Will Be Blood is the kind of film that is easily called great. I am not sure of its greatness. It was filmed in the same area of Texas used by No Country for Old Men, and that is a great film. And a perfect one. That makes perfect sense to me. Ebert was such a populist that I can completely see why he would make that choice. They're hard for me to separate, but I don't think I agree with him ultimately, because I am convinced of Paul Thomas Anderson's greatness and this film in particular. I don't know that he will ever match this again. And I'm a huge fan. I've loved everything he's done. Everything he's done, in my opinion, has been good to among the greatest. Well, hopefully we'll get some folks to go back and listen to episode 8 on No Country for Old Men and watch the two of them together. See what you think. Well, while you are recommending things to people, do you have a film recommendation this time? I do. I chose the thing that Paul Thomas Anderson specifically cited as a huge inspiration for the film. He watched this film constantly, and we also already mentioned John Huston's influence on Daniel Day-Lewis. And so my recommendation is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948. Another dad connection. That is one of my father's all-time favorite movies. It's one of mine, too, and I would love to do an episode on it at some point. Directed by John Huston, as we mentioned, with Humphrey Bogart, Walter Huston, my favorite, and Tim Holt, about an increasingly desperate search for gold in the Sierra Madre Mountains. I chose it not just because of the direct connection. The other thing I was thinking of was Wise Blood, as I mentioned mm. earlier. The way John Huston is able to capture the desperation in people really speaks to me. I think it is an amazing Humphrey Bogart performance. Tim Holt is someone who rarely registers for me. I think that yeah. he is either great or terrible. I think the same. But it's all Walter Houston for me. Doesn't he steal everything he's ever in? Absolutely. I love it from start to finish. Can't wait to watch it again. How about you? Well, mine is about as far away from all of this stuff as we could possibly get. Because this recommendation is more of a tribute and a dedication to Julie in this case. One of her favorite movies of all time, which I encourage everyone to see, is Drop Dead Fred. From 1991, directed by Ate de Jong and starring Rick Mayall and Phoebe Cates. Now I understand why when I asked you what year is your recommendation, which we normally do to make sure we haven't picked the same one, mm. you said there is no way yeah. you will come close to guessing this. It's about a young woman's imaginary friend returning when she finds herself as an adult facing an emotional crisis. And no film and viewer that I can ever recall sync up better than Julie and this movie. She was the most chaotic, good, gleefully anarchic person that I've ever known. And I have maybe never heard anyone laugh as hard at anything as when he says, I made your sweater all stripey. Have you seen it? I haven't okay. seen it. Then that doesn't register for you. But anyone who has seen it knows exactly what I'm talking about. So in Julie's honor, I recommend everyone go out and have a madcap adventure of any sort, but specifically spend an hour and a half with Drop Dead Friend. And so once again, that's two great recommendations, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Drop Dead Fred. And that brings us to the end of episode 57. Before we do anything else, I wanted to say a special thanks to you, because I know it has not been an easy two weeks, and it's not the easiest position to be in that you find yourself, but you have been patient and helpful to me, and I appreciate it. It's been a bit of a roller coaster for me. And between getting up and just putting one foot in front of the other, there have been days that I just either slept all day or didn't want to 
get out of bed, or speak to anyone, or do anything. So I know it has not been a real picnic. I have also had those days in our relationship, and you have gotten me through those. And I know there will be others to come. But I'm just glad that we get to be together. Because we just can't do it on our own with these people. <laughs> in addition to thanks to you, I did want to say a special thanks to our newest Patreon supporters. Drew Tavendale, our friend from one of our absolute favorite shows, Fuds on Film, contributed to the cause this week. Thank you, Drew. And Paul, who runs Platter Playlists, also contributed. Thank you so much, Paul. Paul does an incredible job at assembling playlists for any and every occasion. His musical knowledge is extremely thorough, so if you want to check out some music that you might not have heard before, juxtaposed with other interesting music you might not have also heard, go check out Platter Playlists. And if you would like to contribute to the ongoing success and growth of the show, please go check out patreon.com slash magiclantern. You can pledge as little as a dollar a month, and starting at the $5 level, you get bonus content so that you don't have to go a Monday without new Magic Lantern material in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has given us feedback or shared the show since last time. Grindhouse Dave, Mike Scharf, Tim Lego, Matteo Boscarol, Andy Wolverton, Jason Beamish, Adam and Allie at the podcast So That's How It Ends, and the aforementioned FUDs on Film. I did want to say that a fair amount of that feedback was strictly backlash about me bad-mouthing Grace Kelly. Yeah, we heard a lot about that. And Quite I, rightly. I stand by it. You rotter. <laughs> we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. If you would like to leave us a review or rating via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>